Would you open your Bibles to the book of Ruth? It's a little book tucked in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And we've been making our way through this book. This is week four of a four-part series. And so we come to the conclusion today. Um, I know many of you have, have known this story for a long time. Others of you that may say, I've never read it. But anybody read ahead this week who's never read it before just because you're like, I, I couldn't wait to see what happened here. Most of you already know that, don't you? Well, there's a great conclusion in store for us, and I'm eager to uh, share that with you. Let you follow along as I read Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is, one, there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. 
Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Do you know where you come from? Have you ever had an opportunity to look back through your genealogy and just explore your family heritage? My Uncle Gary, who passed away earlier this year, my dad's only brother, was deep into our family tree. And I have, I almost brought it today, but it would have been un, a little unwieldy here. I have a big notebook, a heavy notebook with all kinds of printouts and information that he's accumulated through his years of study. And one of the things that he did was even to share his account information on Ancestry.com. So I have access to all this work that Uncle Gary did. I'm particularly interested in the Hanks line that reaches back just a little over 400 years, 10 generations to me as I count them up. We don't know the date of, of birth for the oldest member of that particular line of our family, but my 10th great-grandfather is John Hanks. He was living in Virginia in the year 1630. Do you know how we know that? Because he had a son whose birth record is recorded, and that son was Thomas Hanks, my ninth great-grandfather. And it continues from Thomas down through William to Luke to Abraham Hanks, my sixth great-grandfather. And Abraham met a woman, and uh, he was apparently working as a blacksmith and farmer, uh, and somewhere uh, around 1768, he married Sarah Harper, and together they had six sons and four daughters. That's a large household. Um, and their daughter, two, two of their four daughters, one named Sarah, the other named Nancy. Sarah is the line we are descended from, but their daughter Nancy married a man named Thomas Lincoln in 1806. And those two had three children, Sarah, Abraham, and Thomas. And I think you all may be familiar with my cousin, Abraham, Lincoln. And we happily claim him. So I'm not descended from him. But we both share a, a grandfather, if you will, Abraham Hanks. Well, that's kind of cool to know that, isn't it? And I remember when my parents first you know, told me, my dad, especially because this is his side, oh, we're related to Abraham Lincoln. Oh, that, that's way cool. So genealogy can tell you about your past, but here's the deficiency. It really doesn't tell you about your future. And frankly, I know very little about my past. I mean, aside from Abraham Lincoln and a few others where we know some things. I mean, they could have been scoundrels for all we know. We have this joke that, you know, to, for John Hanks, the, the, the oldest descendant we can be aware of who lived in Virginia, well, Virginia was populated not just by people who were seeking a better world, but England was emptying out their prisons in those days and sending them across the, the big water. Maybe John was one of those. We, we don't know. It's great to have some understanding of where you've come from, but it's more helpful when you can know where you're headed. And there's a genealogy included at the very end of this story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz that really sets trajectory for us. And we're gonna get there in a moment, but I want you to think, even in light of what we've sung earlier in the course of this service, that God has actually not only told us where we've come from, but he's told us exactly where it's all headed. And he's told that story through people. Well, let's 
Go back to the opening verses of this particular chapter, though, before we get ahead of ourselves and just wrap up this story about ordinary people who've come through some really extraordinary circumstances, some of which were so hard, so desperate, that at least in the first chapter, we wondered if these two widow ladies who are related to one another, Naomi, the mother-in-law, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, are going to survive. God's brought them into a sweet place, and at the end of chapter 3, where we left it off last week, Ruth had made the marriage proposal to Boaz. Boaz had agreed to pursue this thing, but said, there's some work I have to do. Ruth goes home and reports it to Naomi, and if you look at the last verse of chapter 3, Naomi simply says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So they go from a place where they have no rest in life because they have no guarantees, no surety, no no money, no access to the resources that they really need to a place of rest. So what does Boaz do? Well, he begins to work in such a way, and I'm gonna cast this um, in in terms of, uh, of, this is a beautiful story, remember, that's unfolding at Bethlehem because Bethlehem is a really important place, not just in Israel's history, it's an important place for you and me. So there's a work of redemption at the gate of Bethlehem. Real quickly, just to summarize what we've already read, Boaz goes to the gate for two reasons. That's the best place to find the relative because people would go in and out of the gate and most people were living in the city because it was protected and so they would open the gates in the morning and people would go out into the fields. Remember, they're coming to the end of harvest and it seems reasonable that this relative, this unnamed relative of Boaz is probably gonna make his way in and out of the gate through the day. So practically speaking, it's the right place to find the right guy. It's also the place for legal proceedings. So it's clear that Boaz is following the the expected legal customs of his community. And lo and behold, the relative comes by. Again, he's experiencing the good providence of God. He didn't have time between the marriage proposal in the middle of the night before and then caring for Ruth and protecting her, sending her on her way. He had no time to put these things into their proper order to send an invitation or message to the relative to say, hey, let's get together today and have a cup of coffee and talk about some really important things. But God made a way, didn't he? God positioned that relative at the gate at that moment. And so Boaz follows this good providence of God and he invites 10 of the elders to to take their seat there. There, There's a a bit of a legal process, a court, if you will, that's about to convene. Now look at verse three. Because as Boaz begins to lay this out, he has a relatively brief speech, but it reflects his obedience to God's word. I think that's really important for us to understand. This is a man of integrity. He has been from start to finish, and he's not about to swerve from that same kind of integrity at this moment. And so he makes what, according to the Bible, is a proper appeal. He acknowledges that he's not first in line, even though Ruth came to him. She didn't go to the other relative. No, he's gonna follow biblical prescription. And so he says simply to this relative, buy it and redeem it. And hey, as a little aside, it's really interesting. And if you pull, start pulling some commentaries off the shelf, the, the name of this relative is not given. And there are multiple theories uh, um, suggested as to why the name is not given. But if you're reading straight out of the Hebrew text, they just refer to him as so-and-so, which could be humorous, as you're laughing now, or it could actually be a little bit of a dig because this, that guy didn't fulfill the biblical responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. Or it could just be because, as you'll see, and we just read, he doesn't really see himself as in a position to do this. Like, he could potentially bankrupt his household 
for this. So there are all kinds of reasons and dynamics as to why he's not named, um, but you know, it, it's, a, it's a funny little literary device. Hey, so-and-so's coming through the gate. Hey, have a seat, so-and-so. That's free. Now, why was it so important that one of these relatives redeemed the lamb? Because that's exactly where, where Boaz makes the appeal. He doesn't talk about the family initially, aside from the fact that this is Naomi's property that, that she needs to have someone purchase. Well, the land is God's gift to Israel. It's their inheritance by divine right. And when God rescued them from the slavery of Egypt, and even after their 40 years of wandering, brought them into the promised land, he divided it up and gave each a portion because at the end of the day, he's a good God and a good father. And so that land represented God's mighty work of rescue for them. And it was designed by God, and it's even written down in Leviticus 25 that the land is to be preserved. It should never leave the family. And if there are hard circumstances, much like Naomi and Elimelech had experienced, where they actually had to essentially sell it off, that there's a way for it to be purchased or redeemed so that that inheritance could be protected. One author describes the, the whole dynamic this way. According to Mosaic law, this land was never to leave the family. And the institution of the Redeemer was one of the nation's customs designed to prevent this from happening. Leviticus 25, verses 25 to 30 specifically. Also, according to Numbers 27, verses 9 through 11, if a man died without either son or daughter, his property would pass to his brothers. If he had no uh, sons or daughters or brothers, then it would pass to the paternal uncles, his father's brothers. And if they had no children, uh, then the property would pass to the nearest relative from his own clan. So God was making sure that, that this precious inheritance was protected and kept within the family um, at all cost. So the fact that neither Boaz nor this unidentified relative are brothers to Malon or brothers to Elimelech uh, actually means that, that this may not fall specifically into some of those scriptures, and, and some of you who've read ahead and studied are like, is this a leveret marriage or not? And I'm not gonna take time to fully explain it, but I don't think it is. That's not a huge thing that I'm willing to fight over, but it doesn't fit it to a T. But you can see Boaz operating according to some of the scriptural guidelines and certainly according to the community customs at this point. So Boaz's appeal to the nearer relative is first an appeal according to the teaching of God's word and the principles that flow out of it. That land belongs to the family and it needs to be redeemed to that end. He's a man who obeys the word of God. Here's a fourth thought from this early portion of chapter four. Boaz also honors the family name. Now, when we come to verse five and the relative re replies, I will buy it. You know, that's where the needle scratches across the, the record, right? I mean, we should play that sound effect when we read that portion of scripture because we're like, wait, time out. No, you cannot buy the land because that would mean you get Ruth. I mean, we're already ahead of the game. But notice how Boaz just wisely and even have this sense of calm. Like he's just, he's, he's good with this. He says in verse five, 
The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so, so-and-so knows exactly what that means. And he starts weighing it out really quickly. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's reasonable to think that he's got his own wife, his own children, his own household going. And he's saying, ah, if I do that, that's not going to work out well. And so the Redeemer simply says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. But Boaz is concerned for the dead. There's a, there's a sweet kind of humility in that, isn't there? He knew Elimelech, may have probably even knew Malon and Kilion, but you don't have a sense that he counts them as rivals in the story. He has a profound sense of duty. He's bound by that duty before God and this family to honor the family name. In the ancient world, one author notes, one of the most fearful curses a person could invoke on another was, may your children perish and your name die out. That's a little more difficult for us to understand. I mean, I think we would sympathize with it, but I don't think we would feel that as deeply or as intensely as Boaz did. And so his relative, so-and-so, says, I can't do it. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Uh, again, there, there's history there we could dig into. It's just one of those customs that we won't fully understand or appreciate, but it's what they did, and it's a big deal at that moment. It may be symbolic of the fact that, you know, relative so-and-so is saying, this is not my land to walk on. Uh, you can even go back and see some of the other examples where, where people like Moses took their shoes off when they were on someone else's ground. Moses, in particular, took his shoes, his sandals off because he was on holy ground when God appeared to him. And so relative so-and-so is giving up his right to the land, and, he, and he's doing this in a very public way. He's doing it in a proper way. And so when the Redeemer, verse 8, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And he speaks it emphatically, you yourself buy this land. Like he's saying, it's not mine, can't do it, don't want it, it's all yours. And so Boaz does exactly that. So he's not only a man of integrity who obeys the word of God, who honors the family name, but now he actually redeems the land and family. And it's easy to read the story quickly and say, oh, well, of course he did, happily ever after, but we don't know what kind of risk or, or sacrifice that actually was for him. It worked out well in the end, but at that moment, he doesn't know how the story is going to unfold. He simply knows it's the right thing to do. God has been leading in this way. Let's do it. So he redeems the land and family. And he says to the elders and the people, verse 9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and, and that belong to Kilion and Malon and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. And that's where we cheer, right? I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Redemption has come to Bethlehem. And what a story. The widow and her daughter-in-law, broken by the famine, impoverished in a foreign land, loss of husbands, loss of any security in life, redeemed. 
the rest that Naomi longed for herself and felt responsible to provide for her daughter-in-law who had turned her back on her Moabite heritage, her family, her gods, her former way of life, and all the security that Moab might have offered her. The rest that those two women sought, they have now found in the house of Elimelech. It's preserved. You cannot help but see in this a beautiful picture not just of integrity and justice in the life of this man, but you see a picture of what our God has done for people like us. Devastated by sin, impoverished, a spiritual famine in our souls because we, we don't have the capacity to manufacture that spiritual truth or the relationship with the living God that would, that would satisfy our hearts and bring our souls into a place of abundance. We're, we're just like Ruth, a foreigner with no right, no claim upon God's household or his kingdom. And yet in great mercy and love, he enters our broken lives and broken world and redeems us. Redemption has come. Well, as we read the next several verses, it's apparent too that blessing rests in the town of Bethlehem. All kinds of expression of it. The first is that the people... Uh, seem to enthusiastically affirm this legal agreement that has been made. And they don't, just, they don't just testify to the truth of the things that have been agreed to on that day, but notice verse 11, how they move quickly into a blessing for Boaz and Ruth. They say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Oh, Rachel and Leah are, are among the matriarchs of Israel. You can't speak of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob without also mentioning their wives. And two of those, Jacob's wives, are mentioned here as the matriarchs who built the house of Israel. Women deserve far more credit than they often get in this world, but it is a beautiful thing to me that the scriptures so often highlight the value of women so often magnify for us the significance of their lives. And we're in a story that has been all about women of faith. Rachel and Leah are among the matriarchs. And then as part of this blessing, they say, may your house, Boaz, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And there's another piece of this genealogy that's a little bit you know, of a scandal, right? What does this blessing tell us? Well, among other things, it tell us, tells us that the citizens of Bethlehem who affirm this legal agreement and now pray this prayer of blessing over Boaz have fully accepted Ruth as one of their own. Did they forget she's from Moab? That's a nation that has just you know, made life miserable in Israel for the last 200 years. They haven't forgotten any of that. But at this moment, what they see is a greater work of God. And they see a woman in whom the living God is at work. And it's not about race at that point. It's not about personal heritage or background or ethnicity. It's about a shared faith in the one living God. And it doesn't just show that the citizens of Bethlehem have accepted Ruth. It actually reveals God's heart for outliers and foreigners. There's so much more to this story than an Israelite man marrying a Moabite woman. This is God himself redeeming a woman from her paganism, from her idolatry, and bringing her into living faith. So the people bless Boaz and Ruth. 
And then verse 13, this is God's blessing, isn't it? So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. What kindness. We just compressed, you know, at least nine months, you know, into just a few short words. I'm mindful at this moment of, of what an adjustment marriage is, partly because our daughter just got married, and I met my son-in-law two, two days ago. We were going to have coffee, but neither one of us felt like so. We shared hot tea. That doesn't sound very manly as I'm saying that to you right now. <laughs> Would you like to have a cup of tea? But we were talking about, you know, how the first two months going. It's an adjustment. Even though you know when God's in it, even though you're, when you know your heart's in it, you can't throw two imperfect people into close quarters and everything just be, you know, smooth. It's good, but it's, it's some work. And, you know, the, the storyteller doesn't bother to tell us about anything else going on. He just says that God gave him a child. That's the big point. In the middle of all those adjustments, establishing a new household, she bears a son. What a remarkable blessing. But look at the next verse because we, we kind of put Boaz and Ruth to the side here for a moment. And verse 14 tells us, then the women said to Naomi, wait a second, she's not the mom, she's the grandma. Oh no, she, she's the woman that God wants our attention on because God is also blessing her in an extraordinary way. And the women say to her, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. They were just praying for God's blessing over Boaz that his name would be renowned in Bethlehem. But for this son, may his name be famous in the land. And these women give God credit for everything that has happened. Yes, not just the good, even the bad. And notice the negative statement. God has not left you this day without a redeemer. Well, remember when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, back in chapter 1, verse 21, she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon us. And in one sense, he had. We're not denying that. But now these ladies are saying, he's not left you in that condition, has he? Truth is, he had never left her, and God will never leave us as we put our faith and trust in him because he's the God of life. He's the God of blessing. And that often comes to us in ways that we don't even think or, or ask him for. We think that if life were comfortable and our bank accounts were fat and we didn't have to go to the doctor for anything, that would be the blessed life. But that, that's here and now. And God's always looking beyond this life to the next, isn't he? The women are aware of how great God's blessing is to Naomi at this particular point. And they pray for God's blessing over this child, her grandson. And then look at what they say about him. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. And the word they use for life is is not just, you know, day in, day out life. It actually has to do with your soul. How worn out was her soul? Well, you think of what she experienced. I mean, she was just utterly exhausted. But now God is working in such a way where her very soul is experiencing a renovation. God, by his work, is bringing her back to that original existence, if you will, and by a baby brings her back to life in Bethlehem. 
Remember how I said a couple weeks ago, it's never too early to celebrate Christmas? There's another baby coming to Bethlehem who's going to restore people to life. So we have a little echo right here. 1,200 years before. But look at what he does for Naomi. Not only a restorer of life, but a nourisher of your old age. Now see, when when she lost her husband and then her two sons, she lost her social security, if I can put it that way. The retirement account collapsed at that moment. No guarantee. Food, money, shelter. She is absolutely destitute at that point. But now, the Lord has worked in a mighty way where this one who's been born will be the source of her sustenance. He will nourish her into her old age. And and what's clearly communicated is, Naomi, you're cared for. You can rest. So she's blessed of God through this grandson or son as it's referred to here. But secondly, as the text continues, the the women note how blessed she is of God through this daughter-in-law. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Well, seven's the number of perfection, right? So you would think that to have seven sons, like that's the perfect number and you're provided for. And as I was looking at this just yesterday, that that goofy little kid song that I don't know why we ever started singing it, but Father Abraham had seven sons. I mean, like, that's not even biblically accurate. He actually had far more than that. So I don't know the origins of that song. If some of you do, tell me afterwards. Uh, I'll be happy to listen to that. Don't really care in light of where this text is right now. But seven's the number of perfection. So what these women are saying is even if you had a perfect lineup of sons, They cannot compare to the one daughter-in-law that God gave you and the deep love she has for you has demonstrated to you even through these difficult years. Oh, Naomi, you are blessed. And then verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And again, you have to recall Naomi's question to her daughters-in-law back in chapter one, verse 11, where she said, have I yet sons in my womb uh, that they may become your husbands? And of course not. We, we knew that she didn't at that point. And yet God knew that something greater was coming. And the one who despaired of ever having another son now holds uh, a baby who is recognized in this community as her son. And he will carry on the family line that seemed destined to die with Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. That's a blessing in and of itself, but they named him Obed. There's a little uncertainty about what the name specifically means, but here are the two best options that you'll find out there. The first is Obed is a name that means worshiper. And remember how we had questions about Elimelech's faith and the two boys? The choice to leave the promised land and, and again, we want to be fair, but it at least puts a question mark. Like, what's really going on there? Here's one who's coming who is a true worshiper. The second alternative is that the name Obed could mean the one who works and serves, which stands to reason. He's the son of a man who is faithful, a man of integrity, who's a hard worker and a, a great um, business owner. We saw that back in chapter 2. Some have even suggested that this may be a shortened form of Obadiah, which we know that name means servant of Yahweh. I would be careful there. I I don't know that we can say that even with a, a great deal of confidence, but what is crystal clear is that God's at work in the Son, and he's a special one. I was struck by this thought in the last couple of days that God, 
is the one who first emptied Naomi's life. And it was devastating to lose a husband, to lose your sons, to be left in a foreign land with so much uncertainty. No wonder she would say, the Almighty has made my life bitter. And you know, for a little window of time, he, he did. But what Ruth couldn't see then is the same kind of thing that you and I have a hard time seeing right now when we're in our really difficult moments is that sometimes God is emptying us out because he's gonna bring something so much greater. And I can assure you of this, that whatever suffering you and I face in this life, because this life is suffering and it's groaning. Remember Romans? Hasn't been too many months since we were there. All creation groans as we await our final redemption. Is God emptying out your life at this moment in hard and difficult ways? My friend, you need to trust that the same God who is at work in the lives of these ordinary people never does that carelessly, never does it indifferently, always does it with divine and good and loving purposes. This is not exaggeration or hyperbole. Ruth is better than seven sons. So here at this moment, the emptiness of poverty, the barrenness of, of both their marriages, the sorrow of death that each of these women have experienced are giving way to the fullness of the harvest that they just came through in Bethlehem, the joy of an unexpected marriage and the surprise of a child born in Bethlehem. But God's doing more than providing for Naomi, isn't he? Yeah, because now we read the storyteller takes a little unexpected term, the turn. They named him Obed. Oh, by the way, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. <laughs> Wait a second. And that's where we are, not just as readers, but as those who, like these people, were looking for God to move in ways they couldn't imagine. I'm struck by the fact that the big problem God noted at the end of the book of Judges, which in your Bible comes right before Ruth, was that in those days Israel had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. God wasn't going, oh, this is bad. No, because he knew generations before a king's coming. And it's not just David. We know actually how the genealogy continues and can piece some even bigger things together. But look at what the, the storyteller does in, in verse 18. Now these are the generations, or, and that's a, actually the little phrase that appears multiple times in the book of Genesis, including Genesis 1. This is the account, we could read that as, this is the account of Perez and his descendants, and then we read through all of those, and, and that's about 10 generations, and a rough estimate is that those generations span anywhere from 900, maybe even as many as 1,000 years. Because you have to go back through uh, Israel's captivity and, or, or slavery in Egypt and the bondage that was there and you know, how many years they languished there. And then you have uh, the wilderness wandering and the conquest of the promised land and then Joshua dies. And then it's the era of the judges and that rolls about 300 years, we think. And in the last portion of that, this family gets going and the household is established and then David is born and we generally date David to about 1000 B.C. So whoever wrote this book and included it in the Old Testament 
was at minimum alive in David's day, and it may have even been written later than that, but just, just do a little chronology here. So from this story forward to David is probably roughly 100 years, we'll say, before David's born in Bethlehem. I was thinking of Micah 5, verse 2, about 500 years uh, after Bethlehem rejoiced with Naomi that, Abed, uh, that Obed was born, the Lord spoke through the prophet Micah, and that was another time of spiritual decline and gathering darkness. How many people then had turned away from God and how many people were fighting to hang on to their faith? But in the middle of that, God speaks through the prophet Micah and says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, that is, you're obscure, you're a nothing, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. How could Micah and other citizens in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas be confident that God would be true to that promise, though they were still probably 750 years away from the appearance of the one who's promised there? Well, in part because they can look back and read a book like Ruth and go, oh yeah, remember how God worked there so unexpectedly and so surprisingly, and we all know King David was the fulfillment of some of God's promises. So if you do a rough chronology from this very moment, we're probably 1,200 years ahead of the birth of Christ. But again, you know the Christmas story and just a little precursor. Anybody here know how many days it is till Christmas? I know some of you track that. 91. See, I told you. And some of you feel like you can hardly wait 91 days before Christmas is here. But here they are, 1,200 years before the real king that God was promising would arrive. But at another dark moment in human history, the land is occupied by the Romans. Things are not going well for Israel. There's a faithful remnant. There are people who truly believe God's word and they're doing the best they can, but they're wondering what in the world is happening to this nation that we love? Why is Herod on the throne? Can't we find a righteous high priest? This crew that's been rolling through here are such scoundrels. There's no authority, as, as Andrew was noting earlier. There's no authority that we seemingly can trust. Well, there's a little group of shepherds out on the hillside watching their flocks because it's, it's birthing season. Lambs are being born. And as it's recorded in the gospel, a messenger dispatched by God himself appears to them in a blaze of heavenly glory in a dark night and he says to them, don't be afraid, behold. Remember that word from the book of Ruth? Listen to this. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is, is about ordinary people who experience God's greatness, but it's so much more than that. It is God's story. One little chapter of the great story that he is writing, a story of his faithfulness, of God's loyal love to ordinary people who struggle to understand the bitterness of their life, who struggle to make ends meet, who struggle and, and hope for just one day of rest. It's the story of God's intimate knowledge of people like Ruth, who are often overlooked or disregarded by society because they didn't grow up in the right place and they didn't have the right personal heritage or background or education. It's a story of God's surprising rescue uh, of those like Naomi who turned to him 
It's a story of God's generous reward to a man like Boaz who faithfully and obediently served God even through the years of famine in Bethlehem. And it's the story of God's powerful work to preserve the family line he had ordained from eternity past, the family line through whom the great king and Messiah would be born. So it is true, as one of my now favorite commentators on Ruth records for us that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are each stellar models of this loyal love, this deep and sincere devotion to God and to one another. And they expressed it in multiple ways and self-sacrificial acts of kindness toward one another, but above all and under all and behind all and even before all is God moving sometimes in hidden ways and mysterious ways, but performing his wonders that we might have confidence to know that everything he has promised in Jesus has come to pass and will come to pass because Jesus is the great redeemer. Do you know him? I mean, do you know him? Is your heart set toward him? Is your faith resting in him? He's the only king who can make this world right. And aren't you comforted by the fact that there are multiple generations who were living in really hard, dark, confusing, difficult times, but as they look Godward, God was there, meeting them in that need, providing for them, protecting and preserving them so that they might survive this life and make it into the life that is to come. Every one of us needs this redeemer. Is he yours? Would you bow your heads with me, please? We bow our heads to, in order that we might shut out other distractions that might inhibit what the Spirit is speaking. I know some of you feel like God's emptied your life out and you don't know what to make of that. If you were honest, you would even say, I'm not even sure I like God at this moment. And if you think of your life in the four chapters of Ruth, You might say, I feel like I'm stuck in chapter one. Oh, my dear friend, this great God will not leave you in that place. And not because there's a future redeemer on the horizon, but we can be sure of that because he sent Jesus into the world. And if he did not withhold his only, his one-of-a-kind son, but delivered him up to death on the cross, the Bible assures us that he will not withhold any lesser good. There's no greater good that he could do for you and there's no lesser good that he would withhold from you. Will you turn to him? And will you actively right now in the silence of this moment from your heart say, God, I'm struggling to understand but I do trust you. I place my faith in you. Some of you aren't looking for a king because you, like so many in that era, are just happy to do what's right in your own eyes and you think you're okay but that's a path of destruction. You need a king. God created you to know him and to serve him. Will you abandon your sovereignty this morning and and by faith will you bow before the great sovereign king of the universe, acknowledge his lordship, begin to live your life according to his word with integrity, the same kind of integrity that Boaz showed. That's the life of faith. Father, there are hundreds of needs represented by this assembly. 
every one of them can and must be met in you. Forgive us for our efforts to save ourselves. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our indifference toward you, even our rebellion against you. Would you give us a sight of the Redeemer who has come and who will return at the end of the age that we might know him and experience the power of his work in our lives and his touch upon our souls. Do all your holy will in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.